True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young lovers whisper in the darkened car. They're excited to once again be in each other's arms. For them... The outside world does not exist. They're wrapped up in the passion of the moment. It's for this reason that they don't hear the crunch of gravel outside the car as heavy footsteps approach. They only realize that danger has snuck up on them when they hear the gun cock. Then, a hell of gunfire obliterates the sanctity of their solitude. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 61, The Serial Crimes of David Mbengwa. This episode is sponsored by the exhilarating new movie, Midnight in the Switchgrass. And let me tell you, true crime fans, this movie is for you. Two FBI agents cross paths with Crawford, a Florida cop who's investigating a string of murders that appear to be related. When an undercover sting goes horribly wrong, Crawford soon finds himself in a twisted game of cat and mouse with the killer. The movie stars Emile Hirsch, Megan Fox, Bruce Willis and Colson Baker, also known as Machine Gun Kelly, and it looks seriously good. True crime fans will be pleased to hear that the movie is inspired by the real-life crimes of serial killer Robert Benjamin Rhodes, who is believed to have killed more than 50 women at truck stops across America. The movie is being released on the 29th of October, and... I have three sets of double tickets to give away to three lucky True Crime South Africa listeners. All you have to do is be sure to follow True Crime South Africa on one of our three social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, and look out for the post which will enable you to enter the draw. I know what I'm doing on the 29th of October, so make sure you either book your tickets for the release of Midnight in the Switchgrass or enter our giveaway today. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Mariska, Antoinette Brigaglio, Hannah Bolton, Yolandi Hirpel, Luke Kortzer, Leonie Eberg, Christoph van der Linde, Ivanka Fisser, Tina Santhia, and Christine Pillay for your support on Patreon as well as Christo Roth, for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax 
for the Devil's Dorp documentary or by purchasing the Kukersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's episode focuses on a serial murderer, and the more I cover serial crimes, the more I start to realize that they very seldom fit the criteria that popular culture would have us believe they should. In so many other episodes where I've discussed serial murderers, and their actions haven't quite conformed to what we've come to expect, I've expressed surprise. But in researching this episode, I began to understand that, really, although some standard patterns might fit, you can never expect crimes committed by one human being to fit the pattern of another. Just as personalities, lifestyles and histories differ, so do serial crimes. The perpetrator in today's episode is quite different from what one might expect in many ways. His manner of killing remained pretty much consistent, but his geographic location changed and his victimology changed too. In researching this episode, I used several online resources, as well as the book Strangers on the Streets by Mickey Pistorius. So let's get into episode 61, The Serial Crimes of David Mbengua. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. David Ndivaleni Mbengwa was born on the 10th of October 1966 in Tohuyando, shortly before that town's incorporation. At the time of David's birth, Tohuyando formed part of the Republic of Venda, which was a homeland for the Venda people of Southern Africa. In South Africa, of course, at this time, apartheid rule was still in force, and as part of that government's so-called separate development policy, they allocated four homeland areas, which they acknowledged would be occupied by the indigenous people of those lands, and be allowed to develop separately from the rest of South Africa, with a view to eventual complete independence. For the homeland of Venda, this independence came in 1979, and the Republic operated as a separate country with its own laws, separate from South Africa. These homelands were, however, only recognized by the South African governments as being separate countries, and the international community would not grant these states access to the world stage as independent from SA. It's very likely that the international community at the time saw these homelands as the apartheid government's way of circumventing sanctions that had been placed on them 
and indeed the different laws within Venda and the other homelands did allow for things like gambling, which was illegal in South Africa proper until 1996. When apartheid fell in South Africa and our first democratically elected government took control in 1994, the homeland states were once again incorporated back into South Africa and the area David Mbengwa and his family lived in fell within the borders of Limpopo, one of South Africa's nine provinces. David was one of seven children in his family. His mother and biological father struggled to raise their brood, and when David's father passed away when David was just a young boy, his mother quickly remarried. In Mickey Pistorius's book, she says that traditionally in many African cultures, women are meant to be subservient to men, and are not seen as people in their own right, but exist only as the property of men. For a large part of many cultures in the world, this is unfortunately true. But I did find conflicting information in this regard around the vendor culture specifically, when I was researching. According to several sources I found, women are greatly respected within the vendor culture and will often head up important families, and it is their standing within a family that often dictates royal hierarchy. I would think that perhaps both of these accounts are partially true. While the original vendor tradition may well be to revere women, there is also something to be said for the overriding patriarchal society the family lived within, and how that would have impacted their family dynamics in the very traditional 70s and 80s. It is perhaps the relationship between David and his own mother that would shape his view of women more so than any cultural determination, in my opinion. And this would not just impact his view of women, but also other men, which would eventually play a major role in his crimes. It's alleged that David had not had a great relationship with his biological father, and when his mother remarried, his relationship with his stepfather was not much better. Mickey Pistorius says in her book that the part of his life that had the greatest impact on David's views were the extramarital relationships he'd witnessed his mother engaging in. It's alleged that he not only witnessed some of these sex acts themselves, which for a young boy would horribly skew his image of his mother, but he also began to direct his hatred toward the men his mother was engaging with perhaps because he viewed women more as pieces of property than actual human beings in their own right, he began to regard these men as breaking an unspoken rule between men that they would not take advantage of another's property. As was the case with many children in the more rural areas at that time, David completed only his primary school years, and did not return to attend high school when his peers did. Instead, he hung around at home, occasionally helping around the house, and almost inevitably ended up getting into trouble. When David was 20 years old, he had his first encounter with the law when he was arrested for theft. 
he was imprisoned for two months on this charge, and then released. It would be another eight years before he would register on law enforcement's radar again. In 1994, when a new South Africa was born, David Mbengwa took his first life. He was 28 years old when he and his uncle got into an argument and he stabbed the man to death in a brawl. Likely due to the circumstances, and perhaps partially due to David claiming that he'd defended himself, he was only found guilty of culpable homicide. He was sentenced to six years in jail, with two years suspended. It would be an event during this time in prison that would allegedly contribute to his future crimes. By the time David was incarcerated for his uncle's murder, he'd married Takalani Lydia Mbengwa and had several children. While he was in jail, he received a visitor who informed him that his wife had been seen having an affair with a local taxi driver. Stuck in jail and having no control over the allegations being made about his wife infuriated David. He sat out two years of his sentence, and his anger seethed within him. Upon his release in 1996, David returned to his family in Toyoyandu. Whether or not he actually attempted to find employment at this point is unknown, but with his criminal record and meagre schooling, he would likely have struggled, and he soon returned to his life of crime. David moved on from the petty thefts he'd committed prior to his culpable homicide conviction and progressed to armed robbery, first with a knife and eventually with guns. His first recorded armed robbery after his release from jail was on the 16th of February 1996 when he attacked Zachariah Mudua. He stabbed the victim and stole 3,450 rand, a cell phone, a wallet, credit cards, a Z88 pistol, a speaker and cassette tapes, as well as Zachariah's vehicle. David would later say that the thrill that he got from being so completely in control of another man was addictive. And now, he was armed with a gun which only increased his feelings of power. This is something that many serial murderers speak about. While knives and other weapons are dangerous, you need to be close to the victim to use them, and this often involves relinquishing a certain amount of control and giving the victim the opportunity to retaliate and gain the upper hand. With a gun, though, you pretty much have ultimate control over that person, if they want to live. You can kill them from almost as far away as you like. You can force them to do whatever you want, and you don't even have to touch them. For men and women like David Mbengwa, this level of control often helps to escalate their cruelty. Just a month later, on the 16th of March 1996, David attempted to rob a delivery truck carrying bread. He shot and wounded the truck driver, Simon Doniana. Almost exactly a month later, he shot and wounded a man who'd been visiting a restaurant in Toyoyandu. He stole 600 rand from this victim. 
In May 1996, David ambushed another bread truck and shot and killed the driver, Thomas Gandula. The following months, he killed another victim, Lawrence Muorfe, in another robbery. Up until this point in June 1996, David Mbengwa's crimes had all been very similar. All had been robberies in which he'd either wounded or killed his victims. All of his victims had been adult males, and it would later be determined that there had been no need for force in order to rob any of his victims. Almost all of them willingly gave up their belongings. David Mbengwa shot them anyway. Clearly, the murders were the point, and taking their belongings was an afterthought, and David's idea of a bonus. With two victims murdered in this robbery set-up portion of his series, David began to escalate and switched his method. At this point, he'd shifted into a fantasy-type situation that was closer to what he would claim had spurred his crimes. On the 31st of July 1996, Mbengwa was roaming around in a bush area near his home when he came across a couple who'd been sitting in the long grass together to get some privacy. 34-year-old Constance Causa and her male friend, who is not named, were headed out of the bush area when they were confronted by David. He forced the couple into their vehicle at gunpoint and then made them drive into the bush. He ordered them out of their vehicle and made them lie flat on their stomachs in the dirt. He started to manhandle Constance, her male friend would later claim that David had indicated he was going to rape her and she fought back. Two shots rung out in the bush and Constance died almost immediately. Her male friend saw his chance and ran for his life. David fired two shots in his direction as he ran but his aim was clearly limited to close quarters, as the man managed to escape unharmed. He immediately went to the police station to report the attack and murder. Unfortunately, they were unable to trace the perpetrator, and David continued on. It is likely that David realised that police were searching for him, and he moved his area of operation to the neighbouring northwest province. Police had already managed to figure out that David Mbengwa was responsible for the string of robbery-slash-murders in early 1996 in Limpopo. And on the 14th of November, David was arrested in Brits for the murder of Thomas Gandula, the truck driver he'd killed in May that year. The police needed to transport David back to Toyandu, but the trip is close to six hours, and they needed to stop over in Silverton, Pretoria, to rest for the night. While the officers transporting him rested, David was locked up in the Silverton holding cells. Overnight, he escaped. Ironically, he headed to the very place that police had intended to take him. Okay, he didn't head to the prison, but he did go straight back to Tohuyandu. He seemed to lay low for several months, and then on the 29th of April 1997, Rindani Rapunga and his girlfriend were spending time together in a bush area when David Mbengwa suddenly appeared. He did not say a word to the couple, but immediately shot Rindani. 
The woman said that David completely ignored her and walked away. The woman was able to flag down a vehicle to get assistance, but Rendani died in hospital. The next time David Mbengwa is known to have killed was on the 24th of October 1997 when he accosted another couple, Lakta Mugwedi, who worked for the Department of Agriculture, and his girlfriend. Again, without saying a single word to either victim, he fired 14 bullets into Lakta, and completely ignoring the female, he left the scene. This would be the first crime in which David attempted to hide his identity by wearing a balaclava mask. If he thought that this would stop police from linking further murders to his series, he was wrong. Less than 20 days after the murder of Lakta Mugwedi, two colleagues, Bernard Nevutalu and an unnamed man, had been attending a funeral when they met up with two women they'd previously dated. The four decided to take an opportunity to have some alone time, and Bernard and one of the women named Rebecca stayed in a minibus on the side of the road while the other couple ventured into the bush area. The couple in the bush hadn't been there for five minutes when they were approached by David Mbengwa. He asked them whether they'd heard about the killer that was attacking couples in the bush. He then left that couple completely unharmed and walked to the minibus where he found Bernard and Rebecca. Without saying a word to the couple, he fired two shots at Bernard, killing him instantly. Rebecca was wounded in the arm by one of the bullets. Although Bernard's firearm was laying on the floor of the vehicle, David ignored it and walked away. By January 1998, David Mbengwa was still on the prowl. During this month, David attacked two separate couples and killed both male partners, again leaving the females unharmed. Korombin Dao and Richard Ramatakiti lost their lives in those attacks. On the 9th of February 1998, David robbed a man in a residential area but did not shoot him. Shortly after this, David, his wife and children moved to Johannesburg to live with his uncle. Residents of the area they'd moved to, called Kahiso, would have no idea what was coming for them. On the 22nd of April 1998, Norman Fikilepi's car broke down near the cemetery in Kahiso. He was relieved when he saw a VW Golf pull over, but when he approached the vehicle, his relief turned to horror. David Mbengwa exited the VW Golf with his gun drawn and robbed Norman of his cash, firearm and shoes. David would return to the scene of this crime a month later to commit what would be his last murders. On the 27th of May 1998, a local murder and robbery detective, Johannes Makwane, pulled over near Cajiso Cemetery with his girlfriend, Doris Robote. The man who dedicated his life to solving murders was about to become the victim of a serial killer. David Mbengwa approached the vehicle and shot and killed both Johannes and Doris. By June 1998, Captain Kwara Nenswekulu of Toyoando Murder and Robbery Unit 
contacted the investigative psychology unit in Pretoria. He believed that he had a serial murderer in his area, and he wanted the unit's assistance in verifying his suspicions and possibly putting together a profile to aid in the investigation. The unit tasked the most seasoned officer in the area, Superintendent Tolly Fliechtenberg of Bosfeld Murder and Robbery, with assisting in the investigation. A task team was established by Fliechtenberg, and on the 7th of June 1998, the task team assembled in Tohoyandu. Almarie Myberg from the IPU would be involved in the task team. In the first few hours of the investigation, David Mbengwa's name was already mentioned. When the sites of many of the murders were plotted on a map, it was discovered that David lived close to many of the scenes. The team went to the last address they had for the Mbengwa family and found it abandoned. Many items belonging to David were still there, though, including discarded pornography, documents detailing the traditional role of women, books on religion and legal aid, and a vendor Bible. The ideas behind the items found matched ideals and values that the investigative psychology unit's profile said would be present in the killer. Friechtenberg was certain that they were on the trail of the killer. Two days later, the task team visited Mbengwa's mother. The woman shared details of her son's childhood and told police about her own infidelities. She then told Friechtenberg that David and his family had moved to Kahiso to live with a relative. She did not know the address that David was living at, but she gave them the workplace of the relative he'd moved there to live with. The next day, the task team headed out for Kahiso. They arrived first at the workplace of the relative, but the man was not at work that day. The task team slept over in Johannesburg that night, frustrated that they had to wait yet another day and risk more victims. The following day, Tuesday the 15th of June 1998, the officers found David's relative at his place of work. They explained the reason for their visit, and the man took them to the house in which David was living. David, however, was not there. While inside, though, they discovered a firearm next to the bed of the homeowner's son. The man explained David had given him the gun. When police ran the serial number, they realized that the gun belonged to slain police officer Johannes Makwane. With police telling the man that he was in possession of a murder victim's stolen firearm, he soon agreed to cooperate and directed police to a home in a nearby informal settlement. At 7am that morning, police descended on the home. Inside, they found David Mbengwa, his wife and three young children. He was immediately arrested. Initially, the people living in the, in the informal settlement were hostile toward police, attempting to drive them out. But when the team explained that they had a suspected serial murderer living among them, the baying crowd turned instead on David and his family and threatened to burn down the home they were sleeping in. 
The task team knew that they could not leave David's family unprotected in the informal settlement, so the team split in two. Half the team took David to the police station to begin the process of interviewing him, and the other half stayed with his wife and children while they packed up their belongings and then moved them to the safety of the relative's home in Cajiso. Inside the home, police found more pornography, another Bible with more highlighted phrases referring to the sanctity of marriage and the role of women in the home, and several more firearms. The task team took David back to the offices of the investigative psychology unit, where Fliechtenberg, Inspector Molele, and a psychologist from the unit could interview him. Fliechtenberg started by asking David questions about his childhood and his views on religion. Whether by chance or by design, it turned out that Inspector Molele was someone that David would hold in high regard. Molele was a prince in the Venda line of royalty, and as such, David felt the need to be compliant in his presence. This dynamic seemed to work in the team's favour when David quietly asked if he could ask a question. He wanted to know whether one could legally shoot at someone if they'd pointed a firearm at you. It would emerge that, according to David, when he approached Officer Johannes Makwane and his girlfriend in the vehicle that day, Despite being distracted, Johannes's instincts had kicked in, and he had pulled his firearm on David, likely hoping to scare him off. David, though, had been unperturbed, and before Johannes could get a shot off, he'd killed both him and Doris. After admitting to shooting Johannes and Doris, the floodgates opened, and with the aid of some well-placed assurances from the psychologist, and in the presence of the vendor prince, Molele, David provided a full confession. The entire interview process lasted just an hour and a half. When the task team transported David back to Tohoyandu, he claimed in a subsequent interview that his uncle, Samson Nevutanda, had supplied him with the cache of guns police had found, and that he had masterminded the bread truck robberies. Nebutanda was also arrested. David's trial started in October 1999. His uncle stood as his co-accused for some of the charges, and the two were defended by advocate Makafola. The trial continued for two months, before being postponed briefly for the Christmas holidays in December. When it resumed in January 2000, David had barely been in the courtroom for a few weeks in the complex trial when Mother Nature proved that there is no force greater than her. Intense tropical cyclone Leon Eline made landfall in Madagascar on the 17th of February 2000. The Category 4 tropical cyclone would go on to wreak havoc across southern Africa in the days to come. In Limpopo, 21 people would lose their lives, and flooding and wind damage left devastation to the value of $300 million before it moved on. The cyclone would cause the greatest devastation in Mozambique, with widespread flooding killing 700 people 
and leaving 329,000 people homeless. David Mbengwa's trial was postponed indefinitely while the province mopped up and attempted to salvage what was possible after the huge natural disaster. Eventually, in July 2001, David Mbengwa was found guilty of seven counts of murder and various other charges, including robbery and assault. His uncle was found not guilty of his alleged involvement in the bread truck crimes. David was sentenced to seven life sentences, plus 46 years. In sentencing David, Judge Makanya asked that it be placed on record that he was of the opinion that David Mbengwa should spend the rest of his natural life in prison. Although South Africa ranks very high on the list when it comes to the global number of convicted serial killers, it must also be taken into account that the very act of identifying, arresting and convicting these serial killers makes us one of the best countries in the world in that area of law enforcement. Although David Mbengwa had been active since 1996, his identifiable series of crimes started quite a bit later. It is highly unlikely that anyone would have initially linked the robbery-type murders to the couple killings, unless some significant physical evidence had been present on the scenes. The modus operandi was just far too different for anyone to believe that the same individual would be responsible. From the point of the series having been identified by the local detective, it took just eight days for a task team to identify the correct suspect and arrest him. Some sources claim that David Mbengwa had been following what he deemed to be a divine mission when he attacked couples in the latter part of his series, and while his religious beliefs and his traditional patriarchal upbringing may very likely have contributed to his crimes, his early robbery-type crimes seem to indicate that he was not driven by such ideals at all. Rather, Mbengwa seemed to have very simply enjoyed the power he had over other men when he killed them. This makes him quite different from many other serial killers, in my opinion. Most often, when we see serial offenders with issues around their mothers, they'll focus on female victims, and especially considering the fact that David had been exposed to sex at such an early age, it's surprising to me that rape did not form part of his fantasy. Of course, we must keep in mind that just because a sex act is not performed does not mean that the serial offender did not draw some form of sexual gratification from the crimes. Sometimes, control is all it takes. It is certainly not uncommon for serial killers across the world to target couples. The still unidentified so-called Zodiac killer, who was active in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., targeted couples too, but he killed both the males and the females. This killer also used a gun in his crimes. David Berkowitz, another American serial killer who was active in the 70s, also used a firearm and often seemed to target couples. He too, though, would kill or attempt to kill both parties, 
and often his targets were not romantic couples, but rather just friends walking together. Cedric Marke, another South African serial killer who I covered in episode 15 of the podcast, did target couples in one part of his very complex and multifaceted series. He used a combination of rocks and a gun to kill, and while he also often let the females live, he killed the male partners and then raped the female partners. So this is something that I feel really makes David Mbengwa quite unique as a serial offender. His patriarchal view of women seemed so advanced that he didn't even see the point of killing a woman. Although he did seem to have a keen interest in pornography, there was only one occasion on which he indicated an intention to rape, but he never did. Although David made very little effort to avoid detection, he did seem to be smart enough to know that if he changed up his modus operandi, he would prevent early detection. As interesting as it is to delve into the psychology of these serial offenders and dissect their motives and actions, the most important thing for us to remember is that David Mbengwa took the lives of at least nine people. He may have only been found guilty of seven, but there is enough evidence to strongly indicate the other two. He also attempted to kill countless more victims, leaving those people with physical and emotional scars for the rest of their lives. As I say every time I cover serial murder cases, it pains me that so little information is available about the victims in these cases. Every single one of those people were just ordinary human beings going about their lives, doing their jobs or spending time with someone they liked or loved, when David Mbengwa decided that they would become the target of his skewed thinking. For David, it was not enough to steal their belongings, their sense of safety and their dignity, he had to wield the ultimate power over them and also steal their lives. The ripple effect of what David did to the community he'd grown up in must have been immeasurable. Nine people, many of them sole breadwinners for their families and heads of their households, were ripped away, leaving already struggling family members destitute and grief-stricken. How many little boys did he rob of the opportunity to grow up with their dads? How many lives did he forever alter when he selfishly took those nine? Although we know desperately little about these people, and we have no idea how massive a hole their passing created in the world, I will end this episode with their names, so that they remain at the forefront of our thoughts. Thomas Candula, Lawrence Muofe, Constance Corza, Rendani Rapunga, Bernard Nevatalu, Purombo Ndao, Richard Ramatikiti, Johannes Makwane, and Doris Rabote. Rest gently.
Thank you for listening to episode 61, The Serial Crimes of David Mbengwa. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.